Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And um, today I have one such author. He has written a book called Cloud Money. His name is Brett Scott. Brett, welcome to the show today. Hey, great to be here, Jamil. Thanks for getting me on. You're very welcome. Um, your book is a, is very intriguing. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, and so, uh, but to kick things off, uh, I start off with the first question before we delve into your book is this, what is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? Ah, okay, sure. I don't know if it's logical, but it's, um, it's logical to me, I guess. Uh, so actually I have a background in, I guess my, my academic background is in anthropology and in particular economic anthropology. And I don't know how much uh, you've encountered economic anthropology before, but it's a sort of a it's a sort of stu the study of how human beings econo uh, interact economically, right? So it's um, and it tends to be a lot more sort of cross cultural than economics historically has been. So econ economic anthropology is my background. There's also a lot of stuff about monetary anthropology and economic anthropology. So I've I'm very interested in monetary anthropology. Think about how monetary systems work. Um, but actually, I also worked in the financial sector in the world of uh, over-the-counter derivatives um, during the financial crisis. So I have experience in sort of the high finance world as well um, in what are called swap contracts. Uh, it's been quite a, quite a while since I was working in those. I've kind of like forgotten how swap contracts and derivatives and all that stuff like works in a way. Well, I haven't forgotten, but it's like, it was like 10 years ago that I was I was working in that world. Um, and it's kind of like no longer relevant to me, but I, I'm, I'm able to follow a lot of high finance stuff. Um, but since then, I wrote a book called The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, which was a guide for ordinary citizens who are looking, on, looking at how to take on the financial sector or challenge it in various ways, especially after the financial crisis. Many people were interested in how you... Um, I don't know, launch alternative forms of finance or politically challenge the financial sector in different ways. Uh, so my first book was about that. And then I got involved in lots of different alternative finance stuff and worked in different alternative currencies and many other projects. And then it's kind of culminated in my latest book, uh, Cloud Money, um, which is sort of looking a lot at the dynamics of monetary systems and the politics of monetary systems. I don't know, is that logical? <laughs> It's logical to me because I understand it because I worked at AIG for 12 years, including five years in the Wilton, Connecticut office where I helped clean up the derivative mess that they created. All right. Yeah, yeah. So you probably I have more experience than, than, than me. I mean, I was like a junior derivatives broker back then. Um, so I kind of like entered right as all the like crazy, you know, crisis hit. So I was thrown right into this tumultuous market. So. I didn't ever experience it before that. Perhaps you did. Hey, I, I, I'll tell you this. I was on my honeymoon um, when the, the week happened in 2009 or 2008. 
um, we were in Crete, my wife and I, and um, AIG got the bailout and we we're like, um, should we go back home or should we stay here? You know, and we ended up going <laughs> back home and ended up helping, you know, clean up the mess. But um, yeah, I, uh, it was interesting times. So I want to talk about your new book, um, Cloud Money. What is it all about? And um, I guess what the takeaway opportunities are for readers. Yeah, look, um, cloud money is basically about, at a very broad level, it's looking at the fusion between big finance and big tech. All right, that's a sort of like, kind of like the meta level of what it's looking at. But then more specifically, it focuses in on how that's impacting the cash system, so physical cash. All right, so there's this typical story that's told in the public domain, it's often told at least, that the move away from cash that many people are experiencing is sort of this organic bottom-up process driven by ordinary people. I'm challenging that narrative, or at least I'm rebalancing it, should I say. Um, there's an element of it that might be driven by ordinary people, but much of it is often driven by large-scale institutions um, that have an interest in squeezing the cash system. So if you're looking at this big topic of the fusion of big finance and big tech, they really can't fuse unless cash gets destroyed. All right, so all the big mega tech infrastructures rely upon digital finance. And if you want to build world-spanning systems, uh, that's, that's what happens. So in a way, my analysis is like moving away from the analysis of like individual people and into the sort of institutional analysis. and. You know, often economists are very fixated upon analyzing what ordinary people do. They're like, oh, consumers are on choosing something. They're choosing this new Apple Pay system. Whereas what I'm often interested in is what creates the choice architectures that people end up choosing or who are the big players behind that. Another way of putting this is, um, you know, if you walk into a restaurant and you see people choosing stuff from a menu, you know, an economist might often say, hey, what's on the menu? And I, why, why are people choosing particular things on the menu? Whereas I'm interested in who set the menu and why aren't certain things on there, right? That's more like an institutional viewpoint. Some, some institutional economists are interested in that kind of stuff as well. But anthropology in general is better at looking at this kind of structure of like how people end up in these certain situations. So a lot of my book is, is trying to cut through that narrative that, that cash is somehow just ordinary people are sort of spontaneously choosing to like abandon it. And I'm looking at actually how these big players for many, many years have been undermining the system, slowly weaning people off cash, slowly pushing them towards these digital architectures and, and infrastructures. Um, but once it does that, I then look at how that's facilitating the broader automation of global finance more generally via the fintech sector. Um, and then I look at the sort of crypto backlash, as it were, all right, because many people in the crypto industry, or at least in the early crypto movements before it became an industry, um, perceived themselves as coming from a heritage which was about challenging that fusion between big finance and big tech. A lot of them for the cypherpunk movements and stuff were very much about say, hey, we've got to build these alternative infrastructures you know, they could see this sort of cashless society type stuff looming. And they were saying, okay, let's think about a different architecture. 
Um, but then I look at the sort of growing industry around it and also make a lot of critiques on whether it's truly actually doing that or not, right? And then I'm looking at the sort of zones of hybridization that are occurring between mainstream players in the crypto world, you know, which we are seeing right, right now. I mean, it's like a big boom time for that whole kind of um, hybridization. Um, but in the end, the books are defense of physical cash. You know, and that's actually quite an unpopular thing in this day and age when there's so much digital hype. Um, I'm just making a, an argument for why you actually got to protect the physical cash system. Got it. Very cool. So I didn't think I was going to be asking about food, right? But I have a follow-up. Okay, so say you go to a restaurant, right? And you, you see on the menu, you see, you see salmon, right? And you love salmon, right? And they, and they either offer it, you know, barbecue or teriyaki or post or grilled. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, that's the, the I guess they call it sort of the boring way to make it. Or you can make it like sauteed with pineapple, mango, risotto, something interesting and intriguing, right? Why do people need to care in the financial system that little tweaks and nuances, you know, kind of like it's important to look at the menu about the, with how things are made and created and prepared, you know? Why is that important to look at the finance system that way? Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm going to maybe steer your question towards the monetary system more than like the finance system or generally. I mean, bear in mind, the financial system is built upon the monetary system. I mean, that's a very crude way of putting it. It's more complex than that. But um, I often think about the monetary system as a sort of the underlying substrate upon which more complex financial instruments are built, you know. Um, so let's look at the monetary system. Many people often don't realize that we live under a sort of dual monetary system. You know, people sort of casually speak about just money generically as if there's only like one type of money. But actually, um, for example, you're in the US, the only type of you know, state or government money you can hold is cash, physical cash, right? The digital money you hold, say, for example, when you're using your credit card, if you're tapping a contactless payments terminal, or, you know, you're doing some digital transfer, that's uh, the majority of that is issued by commercial banks. Okay, so it's a different type of money entirely, and it has an entirely different politics to it. Even though you generically might speak of both as being dollars, you know, they're not the same at all. Um, and the, the, the metaphor I often use, and sorry if this is diverging a bit from your salmon, your salmon, uh, <laughs> salmon metaphor, but um, the metaphor I often use to help people think about this a bit is like, imagine you rock up to Las Vegas and you, you have cash, right? And you go to a casino like Caesar's Palace or whatever, whatever the casino is, right? And you hand the cash over to them at the counter. Um, and they give you chips in return, okay? Those chips are a privately issued form of money that can be used within the casino, all right? They're essentially promises for dollars with the with branding of the casino on them, and they can be used internal to that, that ecosystem, all right? Um, actually, the digital money systems that we use, and when I say digital money, I'm meaning the, the sort of your bank account, right? Um, these are 
privately issued chips issued by commercial banks, all right? They're a type of digital chip issued by banks when you hand them state or government money, all right? Now, what we call the cashless society is a move essentially away from government money towards this bank-issued money, all right? Or to having that between you and everything that you do. And that's a big political shift. Historically, in our monetary systems, we'd have this power balance between the banking sector and the state, all right? Um, and we can go into the details of that, but, but, but basically that power balance is shifting a lot now towards the banking sector. All right. So whenever you're using your credit cards, you basically got constantly using the banking sector. So I'm analyzing, um, for me, that has huge implications because there, as soon as it, those intermediaries get between you and somebody else, there's big surveillance implications. All right. There are, um, censorship implications where you can sort of control how people spend, or uh, at least in some future imagined scenario, if everyone's forced to use these digital systems, you have this big potential for a lot more authoritarian type of behavior. It has big resilience problems in the sense that like, um, why? Let me give you an anecdote from the Federal Reserve. I mean, I was speaking to a Federal Reserve employee and it was just saying, hey, when a hurricane's approaching the coastline, people are ducking for the ATM big time, right? Because they want offline money. People know that digital infrastructures crash, right? And they want an offline form of money when a natural disaster is coming, right? So as soon as you have this, this physical form undermined, you have big problems if you have natural disasters or any kind of any kind of like um, issue, even terrorist attacks and things like that, right? So there's a big resilience problem in this in digital infrastructures. Um, but finally, there's big exclusion problems. You know, not everybody, the banking sector doesn't want to serve everybody. And so suddenly, if you find yourself in New York and you're wandering around and you have all these shops saying, oh, we quite have gone cashless um, or whichever city you're in, they're basically saying, we don't, we're not going to accept anybody who doesn't either have the ability to join the banking sector or who doesn't want to join the banking sector. Um, so there's a big political issue there, a class issue. And those, you know, you both generically call those dollars, but there's big, big differences between depending on which type you're using. I don't know if that addresses the salmon. Sorry. <laughs> no, it it does. I'm going to have steak for lunch. Um, so, <laughs> you know, um, you said something interesting there. You said um, you said resilience, and you said, you know, digital infrastructures crash. Well, there's been a crash this week in crypto. You know. Oh, yeah, um, that's a yeah it's been bad but there's a, so i would say there's a war on crypto and there's a war on cash right so i want to first talk about the war on cash what's beneath the surface of that war on cash and what what is really like what's really going on besides you know banks like you said before banks and you know have dropped from well, 300 banks uh, 20 years ago in the us to four right so what's that war really look like under the surface well, look, there's, depending on what country you go to, there's different dynamics, right? Um, the U.S. is actually still pretty cash heavy, right? There's still quite a strong, um, you know, compared to places like Sweden, right? And there's particular dynamics for, for, for why, that, why that occurs. Um, part of it sometimes is just like the kind of like sort of, sort of frontier type libertarian spirit sometimes, you know, people are like, ah, oh, I don't need these, you know, fancy companies and stuff, you know, it depends. Whereas in you know, Sweden, everyone's got these extremely high trust in institutions. So they just think it's sort of self-apparent that you should just obviously use these big institutions, right? Um, but that's just not shared everywhere. But um, if you're looking at who has a 
particular interest in trying to undermine the cash system, well, there's some particular obvious ones. The obvious ones, for example, is the banking sector. Um, I mean, the Bank of America CEO has just like, has like openly said that before. He's just like, we want a cashless society, aka we run the infrastructure of a cashless society. So, of course, we want the cashless society. It transfers more power to us, right? Um, that's the sort of underlying bank account infrastructure. All right. So, uh, and they get, you know, fees and interest and kind of from, from having that infrastructure. And then, of course, on top of that, it was all the payments companies, Visa and MasterCard, who basically specialize in um, sending the messages to the banks saying, you know, hey, Jamil wants to transfer to somebody. Uh, can, you, can you do it, please? You know, that's what they do. Then all the fintech companies as well, because of course fintech companies can't work with cash normally. They they want digital infrastructure because they're trying to automate everything, and so they can't work with a, a non-automated form of money. So there's a big commercial interest, right? Um, and but then there's also been state interests. You know, states have has sort of problematic relationship with cash. I mean, the central banks issue cash, but then they also are like, I'm an R about it, and they have these kind of like. Um, so there's some elements of the government that do want to have more oversight over payments, for example, tax authorities and like even monetary policy people. You know, there's a big guy at, uh, at Harvard called Kenneth Rogoff, who's always former IMF guy, who's always arguing against cash on this ground. It's like, hey, you can't basically like you can't control the economy as well if you have people holding this offline form of money, essentially. Right. Um, but then actually the big one that's often missed is big tech, you know. Philadelphia try to pass uh, laws, well, they have passed laws to sort of say to shops, you have to accept cash for people who don't have access to bank accounts. And behind the scenes, Amazon was lobbying against that because Amazon wants to have these fully automated things. And they're basically saying, we, we, we refuse to, we'll leave if you, if you uh, force us to use a non-automated form of payment. All right. So all the big tech companies, in order to get massive scale and centralization, you can't have this decentralized form of government money. Because if you think about cash, it comes from a central issuer, all right? But it percolates through society in a very decentralized, face-to-face, hand-to-hand, street-level type of way. And, you know, it, it's actually very decentralized in the way that it ends up operating, all right? Even if it has a centralized source. That's far harder for big tech companies to work with than for them to just send a message to Visa and MasterCard and the banks. Say, hey, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll work with other big data centers, we don't want to have to deal with like all these human beings with their little units of cash. All right. So the big tech has a massive interest in trying to sort of slowly undermine the cash system. Um, but yeah, the war on cash, I mean, I could go on for, for a long time about it. All these different players have different sort of means of undermining it. Some are more subtle than others. You know, it's from advertising through to slowly shutting down the infrastructure. So for example, in the UK where I was based, the banks keep on shutting down their ATMs. And the reason that they say they're shutting down the ATMs is they say, oh, well, cash demand is declining. And it's like, well, no wonder it's declining. You're making it harder and harder to access. All right. If I have to walk five kilometers to get to it, of course, I'm going to slowly be pushed towards your digital infrastructure. So they use all these sort of self-referential kind of like feedback loop arguments to slowly shut down the exits um, out of their systems. Um, and there's many examples of, of this different type of stuff around the world. So let me, uh, I got a follow up and um, just trying to figure out how I want to, how I want to say this. So you said we talked, you talked about trust in institutions and you said as Sweden is high in trust in institutions and um, begin, you know, 
other countries around the world are beginning to not trust institutions. And then you talk about big data centers, right? Um, one of the big data centers is Alibaba, one's Amazon. These are companies that are openly saying that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are a drain on environmentalism or a drain on like really harm the environment when it's the big data centers themselves who harm the environment the most. Um, why should people look at not automatically trusting institutions and looking under the under the um, you know, hood to to see, you know, what can they and can they tr not trust? Why should we begin to do that? Because the trust is declining. Well, I'm not sure I fully, I fully have captured the whole essence of your question, but I mean, just first of all, just to say from the outright, you said people are beginning to not trust. I mean, lack of trust in institutions has been endemic around the world for a very long time and in many places. If you go to like, for example, Mexico or, you know, like um, South Africa, where I'm from, or Turkey, Greece, there's many places where people have low trust in institutions, all right? And there's, it's probably like more common than not for people to be generally distrustful towards large institutions, right? Especially when those institutions are run by people perceived to be in the elite classes of society, all right? So, you know, this has been a long haul for big institutions to slowly like, you know, get between people's interactions. And actually, if you think about, for example, think about cash, what's cash associated with? It's associated with the margins of society. It's associated with like people doing street side commerce. It's just people doing small scale work, people who are like laborers, you know, uh, sex workers, all sorts of basically anybody who's not in the mainstream tends to be in that realm, right? Whereas, of course, your salaried workers of JP Morgan and so on tend to have these like salaries paid to bank guys. So there's this long historical connection between cash and people on the margins. And what's been happening over the years is that the, the institutions are slowly creeping ever more towards those margins and slowly getting between everything people there, right? Um, and of course, you mentioned players like Amazon. I mean, the only reason Jeff Bezos is making 250 million bucks a week, regardless of whether he gets out of bed, is that he owns shares in a gigantic infrastructure that's creeping between everybody's personal interactions, right? And it's, um, so, yeah, I mean, you might find it convenient. Uh, perhaps you like it. Some people do like this kind of stuff. I happen to like not be that into it. But like, regardless of whether you like those giant institutions or not, um, the structural effects on an economy are huge. For a start, they get massive amounts of power for a start. They also get, it creates massive amounts of inequality. All right, think about that situation. Jeff Bezos is going to earn 250 million bucks a week, even if he's sleeping, watching Disney movies on his bed. All right, um, precisely because that, that, that infrastructure is just like harvesting that for him from us. Okay, and that's some people think that's a very bad situation to have in terms of economic inequality. Um, so yeah, these massive institutions rely upon us being very apolitical towards them, thinking that, okay, oh, it's very nice and convenient and so on. But what I'm always showcasing is like, what is the shadow side of that convenience? Often it's about the huge amounts of power concentrations and huge amounts of wealth concentrations. If you don't care about those, you're not going to care about this issue, you know?
if you're like fine, people are gonna become billionaires and have massive power over me, and I don't I don't care, then you're not gonna be particularly moved by my arguments. But I don't like that. <laughs> that way. Yeah, I don't like it either. So um as these institutions, you know, as that power structure gets wider and wider and creeps more towards the margins, um, you know, how does this end privacy? Or how could it end privacy? Well, you know, I mean that's uh the obvious point about uh sort of this, this I mean, I'm not the only person who's made these types of points. This has been made for a long time by tech critics is, is that, well, as soon as you have institutions between you and somebody else, they basically are they not only are monitoring everything that, that you, that you do, but, but when you're dependent upon them, they start to have power over you in the sense that they are able to stop you interacting. All right. Um, especially when you don't have an alternative. So the, Privacy debate and the censorship debate are, are linked hand in hand because privacy is all about like, can you be monitored? All right. And what's going to be used with the information? Of course, big tech specializes in giant surveillance systems, which it tries to sort of dress up in, uh, you know, sort of that, that's all great and convenient and useful for you to be surveilled. Um, but then it, of course, has all these, once that becomes entrenched, that becomes a mechanism via which stuff can be enforced. You know, if you're looking in places, the, the place where people often look now is like China for this kind of stuff, right? Which is people have become very dependent on these platforms. And of course, if you're suddenly on the wrong side of that and the platform receives an instruction from the government to say, stop that person from being able to, for example, travel, you know, that can be done now, right? Um, so that's that's a, a huge issue. Um, but privacy more generally, if you're looking at sort of privacy like campaigning, one of the big questions, one of the big points people, people made is that we have the right to be treated as adults, right? Like surveillance is really something that like parents do, right? You're sort of watching your little kid go around because you're, you're potentially worried about they're going to like hurt themselves and so on, right? And if you think about, think about, think about teenagers, one of the big sort of battles between parents and teenagers is parents are still trying to do surveillance. But the teenagers are starting to say, like, no, you no longer have a right to be surveilling me. All right. By the time we become adults, we have this certain sense that actually we should be trusted to behave in a certain manner without having to be monitored. Whereas the, the essence of all the sort of surveillance arguments made by many of these players is they say, oh, well, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to, to, to fear. Right. Whereas my point is like, it's got nothing to do with whether I have something to hide or not. It's whether do you have a right to constantly be watching me? I'm an adult. I don't want to be constantly watched by you. All right. So a lot of the privacy stuff comes down to that. When is it acceptable to be watching people and when is it like not acceptable? Um, and yeah, I'm kind of going around to question a bit, but <laughs> put simply, this, we're moving towards ever greater levels of surveillance. And unless we have counter movements, political counter movements that force different types of political rights in that context, you're in trouble. Talk about that surveillance. I like to know where my kids are. You know, if they're playing at the base, if they say they're going to a friend's house, I want to make sure they're there in a friend's house. Or if they're playing baseball, I want to watch the baseball game, right? But what, you know, but us as a population being surveilled by, you know, institutions, you know, what are they what are these institutions afraid of 
really? Well, look, the surveillance for many institutions isn't about them being afraid. It's that it's profitable. All right. So big tech surveils you because they can make tons of money from that process. Um, but the, the point is, is that the commercial impulse to do that becomes political when states have access to that information. So, you know, a lot of the states aren't doing the information collection themselves. You know, Google's doing it. Right. But then, of course, that creates this honeypot that can then be used for political purposes. Like actually, in you know, my book, I use these different um, archetypes. So I took about Big Brother, Big Bouncer and Big Butler. You know, so Big Brother, everybody knows. Big, Big Brother is the sort of like, you know, guy watching over you. It's a quintessential sort of state, you know, uh, bogeyman who's kind of like watching you. Big Bouncer is more like these companies that watch you in order to decide whether you should get access to something or not. It's a bit like the bouncer at a door, all right? So they, so a lot of, many companies have these technologies where they're, they're watching you. For example, like credit scoring type stuff, they're watching you and they're like, okay, give this person a score to decide upon access. Then there's Big big Butler, which uh, to me is these companies that watch you in order to try and like get you to do things. You, know, you ever have like, you know, these companies or like Google does it a lot where they say, hey, would you like to maybe do this thing here? It's like this creepy butler who stands behind you and says, hello, sir, I saw that you noticed, I noticed that you were liking this. Would you perhaps enjoy this thing here, right? Um, that's a that's surveillance, right? But it's done with the, the, the sort of what they act upon is in trying to steer you. So what we're seeing right now is a combination of all three of these things. You've got these systems that prevent access or give you access or deny access. The systems that try to steer your behavior and then behind it all you also get all this that information becomes useful for big brother stuff like watching you to sort of um uh, stop you doing political activism or whatever it is that's that would be um particular states have in mind i like that i like your archetypes that makes a lot of sense too so interesting very interesting so um i want to thank you very much um talking to me today this has been an amazing conversation and yeah, it's been fun. Final, yeah no problem I, I have one final question uh it's this how can people find out more information about you about what you do um how can they obtain a copy of your book how can they uh you know why should they right away um and uh you know how can they do any of that sure well first of all getting a copy of the book if you are in uh, the US or Canada, you can get it from HarperCollins. Uh, to be honest, probably the easiest way to do it is just to type in cloud money, one word, um, HarperCollins, Brett Scott, you'll find some kind of link in the UK area and sort of like Europe areas. Um, you'll find it with Penguin. Um, in, in the sort of in Europe, it's coming out um, next, well, it's coming out on the 19th of May. In the US, it's coming out on the 5th of July. It'll also be coming out in eight different languages over time. So, um, but uh, in terms of just finding me, uh, you can check out. I've got a newsletter just called "Altered States of Monetary Consciousness," uh, which is under brettscott.substack.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, I have a funny Twitter name called at Suit Possum. <laughs> it's a long story. So S U I T P O S S U M um but yeah you'll find me around about awesome thank you very much for your time today great thanks so much eh? cheers